You're not going to believe it. It was 21 years ago this month this happened. Paramount Pictures released this movie that you might have heard of, The Truman Show. It starred Jim Carrey in a truly breakout role, and it was filmed largely here in Walton County and Seaside. Uh, there is so much going on in this film, and it's more relevant today, I think, than it was 21 years ago, especially now that most of our entertainment is driven by reality television and voyeurism. And uh, maybe I'll come back to that in the future. That'd be worth revisiting. And you probably know the plot. Some scenes may have even been shot on your street. Uh, you may be one of the folks. Uh, scenes were shot in your home. Uh, Truman Burbank is adopted by a television corporation. And a man named Kristoff, played by Ed Harris, who plays a ma masterful role in that movie. And they build this life for him. But it's all fake. Truman grows up and lives on a giant television stage. And everyone he comes in contact with is in on it. They are all actors and actresses, his parents, his friends, his wife, everyone that he meets. And every day, millions of viewers tune in to watch what's happening. And he's oblivious. And you might remember that line, in case I don't see you, good afternoon. You remember it? Good evening and good night. He said that every day. And he has this perfect life, fraudulent in a fraudulent community, but perfect. And through a series of mishaps, 30 years into the show, when he's 30 years old, Truman begins to finally suspect, suspect that something is wrong, that nothing around him is real. He begins to break down, suffering from paranoia and panic, and he wants to escape to go to Fiji, of all places. But the show and the director, Kristoff, won't let him out, blocking him at every turn, snooping on him with their 5,000 cameras, making him crazier all the time. Truman succeeds, however, in ditching the cameras long enough to requisition a sailboat, and he starts sailing away from this false life across a false sea, finally sailing into the wall of the production studio where he finds a door that exits to the outside world. And it breaks the show. Christoph finally has to, for the first time, reveal his hand. And from the control room, he speaks down into Truman's life. And the dialogue goes like this. Where are you going, Truman? And Truman says, who are you? One of the best lines. Christoph says, I am the creator of a television show that gives hope and joy and inspiration to millions. Truman, then who am I? You're the star. And Truman asked, was nothing real? And Christoph says, you were real. That's what made you so good to watch. You can leave if you want. I won't try to stop you, but you won't survive out there. You don't know what to do, where to go. I've watched you your whole life. I know you better than you know yourself. You're not going to walk out that door. There's no more truth out there than in the world I created for you. The same lies and deceit. But in my world, you have nothing to fear. What does Truman do? He turns to the camera one last time and says... In case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night.
And he laughs, he takes a bow, and he turns around and walks into the real world for the first time. Great movie. Truman was real, but he needed real people and real community in which to live. Real people need real community. Now, if you aren't real, if you are mostly made of artificial filler and preservatives, <laughs> if you are nicely insulated behind a facade, an orchestrated show that would rival a movie production, you will get by on the appearance of community. But most of us have enough of our soul left, enough humanity left that the only real thing that only the real thing will do. Real people supported and sustained in real community. And while there is a dreadful lack of real community these days, because we all kind of live in this sort of Truman show, the intent of this thing that we call church was designed otherwise. It is. It can be, anyway, a real community of real people. Now, our English word for church is based on a word from the Greek, ekklesia, that means those who have been called out, those who gather a gathering. Church is not a building. Church is not a place. It's not a registered 501c3 not-for-profit organization. It's not a political demographic of potential voters. It's not a target demographic. It is a people called out from the whole as a redeeming witness. It is a community gathering together and held together by the will of God, the resurrection of Christ, and the power of the Spirit. It was, it is, it can be like nothing the world has seen previously. I find it informative that in the aftermath of Easter that the first thing that developed was not doctrinal statements or creeds. This is what we believe. It was not the ordination of ministers, the establishment of a bureaucracy. It was not the raising of steeples, the hammering out of a budget or a strategic plan or a book of discipline. The first indication that something new was happening in this post-resurrection world was the formation of a community, the establishment of a people who would live their lives together as the family of God. So you have ecclesia, those gathered to be a new kind of community that challenges everything that has come before it and transcends the usual dividing lines that keep people separated. Here's a quote from John Howard Yoder. He says, We know a new community has come because its formation breaches the previously followed boundaries. And then Paul says it like this, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all, all one. one in Christ Jesus. What an egalitarian paragraph. Equality among the races, among ethnicities, among nationalities, among rich and poor, 
those at the top, those at the bottom, equality among the sexes, all are one in Christ. A Jesus-shaped community is one where every person who calls Jesus Lord is welcome and treated as a brother or a sister. It doesn't mean every person is right. It doesn't mean that every person is doing what they should. None of us do all that we should. And it certainly doesn't mean that people come to us as we wish they were. It means they come and whoever they are are welcome and they're treated with dignity. Real welcome, real dignity, no facades. It means that you won't find any no trespassing signs in a Jesus-shaped community. No one is guarding the door or the communion table. No one will be theologically frisked <laughs> to see if they're smuggling contraband into the community. You don't need a ticket, Curtis Mayfield said. You just get on board. Faith is the key. And thank the Lord. Cindy's been reading a book entitled lately, The Blue Zones. I don't know if you've seen this. It's a lifestyle book. Unknown to her, I've been peeking at it myself, but I couldn't tell her that. There's all this health stuff in there, and I didn't want her to know. It's a great book. It's by Dan Beatner, and what Dan Beatner has done with a lot of research is look at the communities of the world, and he has found these blue zones where people are living healthier than anywhere else. There are more concentrations of healthy folks and folks living to be 100 in some key communities around the world. And these are called blue zones. And these blue zones have a very low percentage of heart problems, obesity, cancer, diabetes. And there are nine common characteristics. Number one, move naturally. The healthiest people don't pump iron. They don't run marathons or join gyms. They grow gardens. They walk. They move naturally. They don't rely, overly rely upon machines. Number two, purpose. They have a reason to get up every morning. That alone will add seven years of life expectancy to your life. Billy, be careful now that you've retired. Find something to do for God's sakes. Or maybe not, if you're ready. Just, you know, anyway. Number three. Number three, shed the stress. Downshift, pray, meditate, contemplate, breathe, take a nap, take it easy. Number four, the 80% rule. You know what that is? When you feel 80% full, you're full. Stop eating. That one little simple thing. Number five, God, eat more plants and less meat. I had a vegetarian meal last night. I just wanted to disclose that, knowing what I was going to say today. <laughs> I love number six, wine at five. <laughs> a couple of drinks a day are good for you, but the authors say be sure that you don't save all 14 up for one day. <laughs> Tim. <clears throat> Because he waved his hand back there, he's doing this. <laughs> now, those are all pretty common sense things. These last three, seven, eight, and nine, were not expected. No physicians really talk about these things, but listen to them. Number seven, 
Put your family first. Those that live the longest have close ties to family, blood family, or those chosen as family. They live close with them, and then sometimes they're living in close proximity with multi-generations. Parents, grandparents, grandchildren. Family is first. Number eight, belong somewhere. People that belong to a church, to a meditation group, to a uh, to a mosque, any kind of religious community, live longer. Because they are forced into interactions with other people. And they are forced out of isolation. And then the last one, number nine, make sure you have the right tribe. And what they mean by that is that people who are looking to live healthy and be healthy tend to surround themselves with people that are looking to be healthy and live long. Didn't your mama tell you if you lay down with the dogs, you get up with fleas? Is that sort of a thing? <laughs> and if you want to be healthy, one of the big pieces of that is being with healthy people. And I can tell you this is completely off, the, off my, my notes here. But if you hang around with sour, negative, angry people, not only will you be sour and angry, it'll shorten your life. Now, I'm not saying you, some of you should go file for divorce today, but... <laughs> This recording is not on, so. I had not thought of an old sociological study in years, but the Blue Zones brought it to my memory this week. And it only confirms what researchers found decades ago. It's called the Rosetto Effect. And it is based on the health and well-being of a group of people in the little township of Rosetto, Pennsylvania. In the 1960s, scientists discovered that everybody in Rosetto was dying of old age. No heart attacks, no cancer, no diabetes. They were just dying of old age. They were all healthy, they were all well, they had half the rates of health problems that the rest of the region had. And so they went to looking and seeing what is it about these people that makes them so healthy. And the Rosettans, first of all, were all Italian. So they said, well, maybe it's, maybe it's genetics. And so they looked into the genetics, but no, their cousins living in other places over the world had mortality rates just like the rest of us. So they looked at the Rosettans' dietary habits. But the people of Rosetto were cooking with lard. They were eating pizza every day. That was loaded with sausage and meatballs and eggs. They were getting 50% of their calories from fat alone. There were no yoga classes, no exercise groups, no jogging trails. They smoked unfiltered cigarettes, drank gallons of wine. This is where I want to live, actually. If I <laughs> so they looked at the environment. Maybe the environment was special. But then what they found out is the two closest towns, just miles away, were working in the same slate mines. But their mortality rates were much higher. How are these people hanging on like this? What was the answer? And the answer was Rosetto itself. This little town had the strongest family ties of any place the researchers had ever visited. Three generations often living under the same roof. There were nearly two dozen civic groups for a community of only 2,000 people. Neighbors sat on their front porches and talked to one another. They ate together went to church together, stopped and conversed with one another. The Rosettans actually cared for, respected, and valued 
one another. No one was lonely, stressed out, or unhappy for very long. In the short, the citizens of Rosetto were living long, healthy lives because of the community that had been built around them, a community that insulated them like few places in North America. Now here's a footnote. Researchers said in 1962 that as the Rosettans become more Americanized, that their longevity would fade. And it proved to be true. The Rosetto effect wore off. And in a single generation, all the Rosettans now die at the same rates as everybody else. Their health and longevity vanished due largely, quoting the researchers, to the dismantling of social ties, the neglect of the common good, and the breakdown of the community. When the fortress homes, the selfish individualism and consumerism moved in, longevity and health were evicted. When community fails, researchers say, we fail. How much more so the church set up as the model of a new humanity. If we fail in that regard, we have failed completely. Josiah Royce, a Harvard professor, a hundred years ago, called this the beloved community. He wrote this, doctrines and creeds may change. The particular institutions that identify themselves as churches may or may not be actually so. What matters in the end is understanding one another in actual, imperfect, finite communities of grace. Bound together by loyalty, striving toward the ultimate and ideal beloved community. That phrase beloved community has been used by Quakers especially. And in the 1950s, it was picked up by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It became his watchword, a quick pointed way to describe everything that he was about. What is the beloved community? It is Galatians 3, 27 and 28. It is the God-willed, Christ-inspired Spirit-empowered vision for the world, for us, for where we live, for here. It is a state of mutual concern and respect. King said it like this. It is a place where poverty, hunger, and homelessness will not be tolerated. Racism and all forms of discrimination, bigotry, and prejudice will be replaced by the spirit of sisterhood and brotherhood. Love and trust triumph over fear and hatred. Reconciliation and redemption is the goal of all things, and love is how we get there. What kind of love, Dr. King says, what the New Testament calls agape, understanding, redeeming, goodwill for all. This love does not begin by discriminating between worthy and unworthy people. It begins by loving people for their own sakes. This love seeks a truly brotherly society the creation of the beloved community. Now that'll preach all day long. It's our work. It's why we are here. And if this is not our work, we should quit. We should give away the building and quit. If this is not what the work is about, a church that is not loving, a church that is not the beloved community, isn't really a church. 
This is our only witness. For if beloved community fails, we are left with neither the voice nor the power to say anything of redeeming value to the world. The church ought to be different by embracing all of God. A monk asks his disciples, how can you tell when the night has ended and the day has begun? One answered, well, when you see an animal in the distance and you can tell whether it's a horse or a cow. No. One said, when you look into the shadows and you look at a tree and you can tell whether or not it's a mango tree or a willow tree. No. They all tried to answer. And finally, the monk said this. When you look into the face of any man and recognize your brother in him. When you look into the face of any woman and recognize your sister in her, the light has come. And if you cannot do this, no matter what time of day it is, you are still in the dark. Amen.